Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his graces and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week, we looked at God's incredible plan to bring unity to this this broken and this fractured world by drawing all things, everyone and everything together in submission under Jesus as we adore him in worship, as we're brought together in him, in the church. And it's this incredible and this beautiful idea that God is doing all of this through Jesus Christ in his church. But let's be honest. We've all been to church. We've all been to church and it's not always a rosy place. Recently, last couple of years, the church that Heather and I went to and, and loved and delighted in when we were in Uh, the United States for my seminary education, they went through an ugly church split. We've got good friends on both sides of that split and they're, they're trying to be really gracious with one another, but there has been a split and there's lots of hurt and there's lots of pain and the experience is awful. And of course, in our own church, we've gone through quite a lot in the last couple of years. And it's not always easy, it's difficult. And it turns out unity is hard. Unity is difficult. And it's worth asking, is there a secret ingredient for unity that we need to hold on to? 
Is there something that's just so central we must prize it above all else? Something that though we are imperfect and often struggle together and have difficulties in the church, that if we had this one thing, God would still use us for his glory. He would still use us for his good purposes, even through our faltering steps in his church. What is that one thing? Well, this morning we're going to look at God's glory in his church by considering how he has founded his church on the gospel on the good news about what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And here's the bottom line. A church without the gospel is no church. But a church dependent on the gospel will grow to the glory of God in good works and in unity and in a life outward in this world. I want to show you the beauty of this central thing, this gospel that we're so dependent on this morning by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. It's a beautiful chapter, like the rest of the series, covering a chapter a week. There'll be a lot that we can't cover. We'll have to just barely graze the surface in some ways. But I do want to highlight this gospel in this chapter by showing you three things. One, we're going to look at humanity's problem. Two, we're going to look at God's solution. And three, we're going to look at the results of the gospel. So as we begin, let me tell you a little bit more about Ephesus. So the ancient city of Ephesus, it was the third largest city of the Roman Empire, the largest metropolis in Asia. They had a population of 200,000 people there in Paul's day. And it was a port city. It was also strategically situated on essential land routes and it was prosperous, it was beautiful, it was powerful. And it had the highest expressions of ancient cultural achievement in that city. Its architecture was breathtaking, its art scene was awesome. It had this magnificent amphitheater, which is the largest in the ancient world, where uh, archaeologists predict or or estimate that there were 25,000 people that could come together at that amphitheater. And its temple to the goddess Artemis, it was four times larger than the famous Parthenon to Athena. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a beautiful, sophisticated city. It was much like Vancouver in that way. It had a good international reputation. People from other places probably got irritated with residents of Ephesus who kept talking about how awesome their city is, just like sometimes you might do about Vancouver. But to these people living in this great city... Paul writes bluntly about something a bit sinister. About what was truly going on in their lives before God saved them. Look at verses 1 to 4. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, though their city appeared to flourish, though they would have thought very highly of themselves, there was a problem beneath the surface. Though they were confident that what they had was true flourishing life, they were, in fact, the living dead. How so? Now look at what Paul said in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul's not talking here about physical death. 
He's talking about spiritual and moral death. He's talking about there being something so wrong within us that it keeps us from choosing the things in our lives that will lead to life. No matter how much we might want some greater good in our lives, we keep defaulting in our desires to choosing the lesser thing that leads us away from flourishing life and towards death. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're somebody that wants to have wonderful friendships, but you find that your pettiness and quick temper keep you saying things that you regret or vindictively responding when offended. Or maybe you know what it is to want to have a fulfilling romantic relationship, but your selfishness, your laziness, your need to be in control and to get what you want from the other person, these things keep you from humbly giving and forgiving and cultivating a healthy relationship. Maybe you want to be a generous person, but you find that your desires for more comfort and more experiences, for more wealth in the immediate in your life, it keeps you from a truly sacrificial love for others. Or maybe you want to be a good parent, but you find that your desires for control, for respect, for a good reputation, and to be loved by your kids, they keep causing you to give in to anger and frustration and hurt and driving your children away from you. If you want to have good relationships with food and with alcohol, with sex, with money, but your addiction to pleasure and to power make you a slave of these things as you consume, ever consuming and never satisfied. Maybe you want fulfillment and lasting joy in a relationship with God. But your love for yourself, it keeps getting in the way. Your love for you first keeps you from submitting to the love of God that you were made for. See, apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead. And our desires lead us away from what is truly life in God. But it gets worse because Paul goes on to describe the way that our problem isn't just spiritual and moral death. There's more to it. He writes in verse 2 that apart from Jesus, we follow the course of this world. And in verse 3, that we live in the passions of our flesh along with the rest of humanity. There's a a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright, and he comments on these verses with these words. I think they're very insightful. He says, we live in a world where human beings left to themselves not only choose the wrong direction, but remain cheerfully confident that it is in fact the right one. Indeed, people regularly point out as evidence of its being the right one, how confident they are on the subject. It is, after all, a fine road and it's much traveled and it's in good repair. It's a little bit like what tech elites talk about when they talk about the problem of living in an echo chamber. Is the problem of living in an echo chamber being surrounded by people that agree with us, that retweet the same tweets that we tweet, and how that perpetuates fake news and wrong beliefs as we don't ever interact with people who believe different things from us? See, our problem is that we live in the human echo chamber, not on social media, but of sin. And we reinforce one another's behavior. But we reinforce choices and behaviors and decisions that are wrong and lead us further and further into slavery to things that keep us from life. And yet there's still more. Because in this text, there's something even more sinister going on. Paul writes in verses 2 and 3, He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
Paul's talking about a spiritual force. Satan or the devil operating in opposition to God in this world. Holding us captive in our desires, in our sin, in our slavery, in our deception as we go along with the echo chamber of sin. So make no mistake, the Bible's teaching is opposite to that of the world. Because the world today is confident in the fundamental goodness of humankind. We are essentially good. And if we just work hard enough or try hard enough or educate well enough, we can achieve true flourishing life in a new utopia of our own making. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible's teaching is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And sadly, when we actually look at humanity, we find we have good reason to believe the Bible rather than secular optimism. You see, the Bible is more honest than the world around us. Because when we look at history, we see that our humanity for millennia, right up to today, is rife with violence and with hatred, with murder, suffering, oppression, greed, cruelty, and horrors. And the last 100 years, which are supposed to be this new golden age, this age where we've been enlightened philosophically, and we can create this new, brand new utopia, moving away from those old-fashioned beliefs about God. It was supposed to be this new, wonderful era. But in fact, they've been the bloodiest 100 years in human history. And in Vancouver, it's very much the same. On the outside, we appear vibrant and beautiful, but our society decays apart from Jesus. We think we found the good life, but when you scratch the surface, you see something else underneath. In Vancouver, you see a lot of avarice, a lot of greed, idolatry of wealth, a lot of drug addiction, broken families, neglected elderly, a mental health epidemic, racism, Actually, Vancouver was recently declared the anti-Asian hate crime capital of North America this past year. This is a place where sophisticated and compassionate forms of violence and oppression are endorsed. We become more sophisticated. We're not so overt, but we steadfastly defend the right to kill unborn children. We're a country that persistently tries to persuade people that assisted suicide is a good idea. That rather than compassion and care and dignity giving support in hospice, we should do assisted suicide. See, we're looking for life here, but even in Vancouver, we can't find it. Even in Vancouver, we have these great problems because of sin. We're dead in our sin and we need to ask the question, who then will save us? Well, there is good news. That's why we're looking at this book of Ephesians. Look with me at what God has done for us in our second point in verses four to nine at God's solution. See, into this bleak, despairing first couple of verses, Paul writes these words. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. And he raises up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Christy, this is a story of salvation in brief. Death, Sin, slavery, but God. It's the most beautiful words in scripture time and again to human beings stuck in the mire of sin and death are those two little words, but God. See, but God is the heart of the good news about Jesus because God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When we were morally and spiritually dead, when we were stuck in the same old patterns and habits of our lives that lead us nowhere good, God plucked us out. God rescued us. We could not help ourselves. God freed us from our sin. God gave us life and joined us up in union with Jesus. Verse 5 says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. You see, when God raised Jesus from the grave, he did it by exerting the greatness of his full omnipotent power. He brought him life. But God isn't the kind of God who is content to just bring life to Jesus. No, the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus and God's salvation is that through Jesus, he's bringing life to all of us who are in Jesus. He's working through Jesus to bring life into this world through his church. You know this. Christ said, you know this. You've experienced this. I want you to just think for a minute. Close your eyes and think back to who you were before Jesus saved you. I know many of your testimonies. I know many of your testimonies. And I know the way that God has changed you. The way that God has been working you, drawing you into his life. Even over the last couple of years that I've had a chance to know you, I've seen God at work in you, drawing you more and more out of the darkness and more and more into the life of Jesus. You aren't who you used to be. You've been washed. You've been cleaned. You've been forgiven. You are being changed to reflect Jesus more and more. You were dead in sin and you weren't able to help yourself, but God has done what you couldn't. Look what Paul says in verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. You see, God has given us all of this blessing as a gift. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's a gift of God and salvation to you and I. You know, I've been talking with John Breyer, the executive pastor here at Christ City Church. And um, recently he told me the story of his dad's testimony. It's a really powerful story. His dad's name is Tim. 
And Tim, back in the UK, he was a gambler when he was in university. And he managed to amass himself this significant debt in university, a gambling debt. But at the same time, Tim was somebody who was being befriended by a Christian. This Christian befriended Tim and loved Tim. And as he got to know Tim, realized that he had this debt. And in an effort to illustrate to him, to show him what grace was, to show him what the love of God was like, this other student said, hey, I'm going to pay for your debt. I'm going to pay your debt. This wasn't a rich student. This is somebody who had some savings and sacrificed personally to give of those savings to pay Tim's debt as a gift. And it changed Tim's life. It changed his life. It caused him to know the goodness of the grace of God in loving him through Jesus Christ. It caused him to be a different person living for Jesus. Christ said he never ever forget this. God's grace is like that. God's grace is a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't contribute it to it. You just reach out with your hands and you receive it from him as he offers it to us. I think our problem is that we're often too proud to receive really extravagant gifts. I've had a few times people have offered me gifts and it's, it's hard to receive them. Just imagine being Tim. Imagine when your new friend offers to sacrifice to pay your debt. Just put yourself in his shoes. Maybe you'd feel embarrassed to need that gift in the first place. But would recognizing how genuinely loved you are, that this is a relationship, this person loves me, would that soften your heart to cause you to receive from them the gift that they offer? Christy, Paul writes about grace. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Christ said, he is rich in mercy. That means he doesn't look at you in judgment, just miserable that you fail all the time. He looks at you with genuine compassion and care that you are stuck in your sin. And out of God's great love for you, he gives you a gift of grace of salvation. This is a completed work that God has done that you reach out to receive with joy and gratitude. The problem we have as human beings is that on our own, we're dead in sin, stuck in the echo chamber of sinners, enslaved and held under by Satan, and we're not able to help ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that God has done for us what we cannot. He's exerted his infinite power and resources for our good to save us and to forgive us and to draw us into his infinite life. And there are results. Look at the results of the gospel. The results of God's salvation in at verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You who were once a dead sinner, God has refashioned, recreated to be a new creation in Jesus, 
a creation that he's made specifically to bring him glory by living a different way of life in this world, living according to his new creation, his life and what he's doing to save and to make new. See, for the Ephesians, they knew who they were in their sin. As they looked back on who they were, they recognized that their sin wasn't merely personal and private. No, their sin was enshrined in all levels of their political and commercial landscape. As prostitution and injustice filled their city. As they were slaves of superstition that led to even more oppression and injustice. As they lived under a Roman morality that favored the strong and was horribly cruel towards women and slaves and the weak and the poor. They knew the way that babies and especially girls weren't valued in their society. That they lived as part of that society. That these little infants would be often left out to die in the hills and that was normalized and that was okay. They knew the way that in their city, sex was idolized. Marriage wasn't honored. And young boys and girls were abused and the family was often broken. But as it came out of a world of darkness and sin, saved by the grace of God, they rejoiced that they had been empowered for good works. And by their love and their generosity and their new morality as followers of Jesus, God was using them in the world. He was using them to refashion this broken city, to refashion a world decaying in sin as little agents of life. Look at Ephesians 5 verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, for example, I want to show you an illustration of what we're talking about here. Because only a couple of centuries later, sometime in the second century AD, an early Christian wrote about his profound experience in the church. He was writing to his friend Diognetus, somebody who wasn't yet a follower of Jesus. And he wanted to write to him to explain a little bit more about the way of Jesus to him. And in this letter, he spoke of the remarkable difference that was seen in the lives of those that God had saved and had a purpose for new creation good works. He said this, Christians marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws. At the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and yet they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they're punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Christ City, this is the story of the church. The story of dead people raised to life, recreated in 
Jesus Christ for good works and sent out into the world as witnesses to a new way of life, as witnesses to the glory of God in the gospel. You see, you have to understand something in this text. Ephesians 2 teaches us that God has rescued us and saved us, not just for our own private, personal enjoyment, but for his public and eternal glory. There's another one of the results of the gospel that I want to show you. It's in chapter 2 as well, and we don't have time to dig into it here, but I want to just show you again the way that Paul highlights unity in the gospel. Look at verses 14 to 18 in chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, in the context of this latter half of Ephesians 2, Paul's describing the way that Jews and Gentiles are brought together through the cross of Christ as one new humanity in Jesus. This is a radical teaching. It's kind of like today saying that the Palestinians and the modern day Jews will be brought together in one new people in unity and in love. And the question, of course, would be, well, how could that possibly be? What Paul's describing is the way that in our salvation, each one of us are united in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 14, 16, and 18. He made us both one. The two become one. He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. Made the two one in Jesus. For through Jesus, we both, the two, have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, the church is made up of innumerable people but innumerable people that have all been united by a miracle of grace to Jesus Christ, their Savior. And it had to be that way. Because without union with Jesus, there is no salvation for anybody. Just think about it. Only Jesus has died the death that we deserve. Only Jesus' death satisfies God's justice. You didn't die. It was Jesus who died. So how do you get the benefits of what Jesus has done? It's only if somehow God works a miracle by the Holy Spirit and unites you into Jesus. See, Christ said the miracle of our faith is that you have been united to Jesus. His death counts as your death. His righteous life counts as your life. His resurrection life is a life at work in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we're saved by being united to Jesus, that means that we are all united together in him. All of us together in one Savior. After all, there is only one Jesus. It means that you don't get a salvation and identity that is separate from mine. And I don't get a new salvation and identity that's separate from yours. 
There's one Holy Spirit indwelling God's one church, uniting us to Jesus' one body so that we will all share one salvation in him. And that means that this new identity comes first. Not first Jew or Gentile. Not first European Canadian or First Nations. Not first athlete or smart person or grad student or career not first law enforcement or anarchist, not first white or BIPOC, but Christian. First of all, Christian. In Christ, a sinner who's been forgiven, washed in the blood of Jesus, who's received grace, who's beloved of God and has been gifted with new life. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ City, look around you. Look around on this screen. I think about who is in this church. And what else do we have in common besides Jesus? When you look around sometimes at, at the church, I love it. You look and you see and you think, man, we're kind of a comically diverse group. I'm not sure that all of us would be friends if it weren't for Jesus. But here in this place, we extend forgiveness to our enemies. We're forgiven for our own sins. We're brought together in a new identity where all the other things that identify us as human beings, they all come afterward. First of all, we are united in Jesus. Here, we're united by a bond stronger than politics, personality, similarities, or agreement even on hot-button issues. Christ City, today, in this age of crazy discord and fracture all around us, this should be a place where we're unified. Where even anti-vaxxers and scientists and doctors and COVID deniers are all together somehow brought in in Jesus. Because he's first. It's not like there's no right or wrong to these issues. It's that Jesus comes first. That our identity is first in him. And we can have an incredible countercultural unity because we are first sinners. All of us, saved by the grace of God, brought together in Jesus and loved in him. So what is it that all unity and good works and new life stands on? What's the foundation without which we wouldn't have the church, wouldn't have unity, and wouldn't have good works? It's the gospel message of God's grace to sinners. Period. Christ City, we are a gospel-dependent church. Hear this. We are a gospel-dependent church. We will never stop teaching this gospel message here. We will never be ashamed of the gospel message about Jesus Christ. It's the most relevant message this world has to offer. It's the most relevant message that is around a message that brings unity and peace, good works and new life and reconciliation. It gives purpose. It creates meaning. It draws us into life. And for us to grow to the glory of God in this world, we must be a gospel community before we're anything else. So as we conclude, let me encourage you. 
Spend time worshiping God for his grace. He has loved you with an unbelievable love. Not because you deserved it, because of his grace, which has been given to you as a gift. I want to encourage you, if you've never read this book, pick up Milton Vincent's little book called A Gospel Primer. It's very short. It's very simple. It's beautiful. Work your way through it. Repent of your sin. Confess the way that you've turned away from God. Delight in the gospel that he gives you and showers you with his grace. It'll help you to grow deeply in the gospel. Second, I want to encourage you. You've been created in Christ for good works. So take some time. This week, take some time to ask him, where do you want me, God, to be serving? Where do you want me to be loving and caring and showing the new person that I am in my life, both in the church and outside of my own community? And let me ask you, in your life, what's the most central thing? What is the most central thing in your life? Is it this gospel, your identity in Jesus, or is it something else? Are you quick to divide with other Christians over secondary things? See, the gospel is seen in our community in forgiveness and unity. It's what puts on display the glory of God and his salvation. It means that there's no better time than right now to take some moments to repent of any bitterness that is growing in your heart. To go and reconcile and ask forgiveness of the person that you have wronged or to confess sin to someone if you need to do that or to seek someone else and to reconcile together for the sake of who you are in Jesus. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? If you'd like time and some help, I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a peacemaker, unified in the gospel. Christ City, God has lavished us in Christ, in the gospel. Let's rejoice together in him as we pray. Father, we want to thank you. You are so good. You are so good to sinners like us. You are remaking, you've refashioned us. Lord, we are saints in Jesus. We're full of new life in him. You're doing something incredible in this church because of your gospel. Help us never to lose sight of it. Help us to hold fast to it, to delight in your grace, to rejoice in your love. Would you send us out this week to serve and glorify you in our city and in our community? In Jesus' name, amen.